The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. We want to take this moment to congratulate Netflix for the recent Oscar win by The Elephant Whisperers for Best Documentary Short. We had a chance to speak with director Cardiki Gonzalez and producer Doug Blush about their film. It's a story of how Bowman and Belly adopt a young orphaned elephant ragu. As Doug said, it's an unusual family story. And it's also subtly and unobtrusively a meditation on the relationship between humans and the other species of an ever warming world. So once again, congratulations, Cardiki, Doug, everyone who worked on the film, and you can see The Elephant Whisperers now streaming on Netflix. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill, and today I'm speaking with Nicole Noonan about her new film, The Disappearance of Cher Height. Nicole is known for co-directing the Oscar-nominated Crip Camp, as well as The Rape of Europe, and producing other great documentaries as well. We recorded live at Sundance. As always, if you enjoy this conversation, please do subscribe to the pod, and you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TopDocsPod. Now my conversation with Nicole Noonan about the disappearance of Cher Height. So welcome. Thank you. Your film is about Cher Height. Do you want to tell us who Cher Height is just briefly? Yeah, Cher Height was a very renowned sex researcher. Her book, The Height Report, which is one of the best-selling books of all time, came out in 1976. And it caused a revolution in the way that people perceived female sexuality. She went on to write two more very influential books about human sexuality. And she also is just an incredible kind of iconoclastic feminist figure who has pretty much disappeared from that cultural conversation. She's disappeared even though she was very big, especially in the late 70s, early 80s. She had 25 or 30 million copies sold. Again, book numbers are notoriously hard. She was also everywhere. Like she was on Mike Douglas. She was with Geraldo. <laughs> she also did the college tour when she was still in the United States before she decamped for Germany. So she was very much part of the culture. Yeah, she absolutely was. She was a huge cultural phenomenon. And I think that the beautiful thing about her innovation, which was to send out these questionnaires about sexuality to women and encourage them to feel free to write anything that they wanted about. Her questionnaires would have 150 questions. Right. Uh, they were extremely intimate questions, the kinds of things that literally women had never been asked. And then she gave them the ability to actually answer them in a safe way. So they would mail them in. They wouldn't put their name on it. She would have no idea who they were. She would know basic demographic information about some of them, but not all of them. And she compiled them and edited them and commented on them. She really radically changed everything for so many women by pointing out that women were not achieving orgasm through penetration. Most women were not. And this was in an era when women were acculturated to believe that if they were not, there was something wrong with them. After a brief introduction, your film really starts as in an interesting place, I think. It doesn't start with her childhood. We get back there later. And it doesn't start with the publication of the book. Instead, it finds Cher as an adult, but vulnerable, I think. She has a BA and an MA from University of Florida. She's pursuing PhD studies in Columbia's renowned intellectual history program. Yet she feels out of place and deeply in debt. 
Yep. She's experiencing classism and sexism that's extremely powerful. It makes her feel like she's not going to be able to get anywhere in that environment. But at the same time, it's the early 1970s and there's social revolution happening everywhere. And so she's not alone. There are a lot of women and a lot of queer women who are really starting to agitate and push back against academic boundaries that are keeping them from studying the things that they want to study. And a lot of what they're doing is resurfacing stories from women in history that are proving to them that there is like a patriarchal oppression and silencing of women's history and women's wisdom. And that's actually concentrated in academia. And I just want to also say that you pointed out that we didn't start with Cher's childhood. And the reason for that is that we really felt like a person like Cher, who had been so misconstrued culturally, deserved to be seen the way that she felt that she wanted to be in a certain way. And we tried to honor that by focusing on her work and the story of her work, not the story of her entire psychology and her entire life. So for us, it was very important to find her at her desk, at work, thinking, because that was really the core of who she was and who she wanted to be. Basically, there's two threads happening here early on that some might even see as contradictory. On one hand, she's a model, some photography, but mainly illustration. And folks, go look up the famous James Bond Diamonds Are Forever poster. That is Cher Heights. Both women are Cher Height. At the same time, she has this burgeoning feminist awareness. Yeah. You talked about how those two come together. Really interesting around the Olivetti commercial. Definitely. So she was doing modeling and some of it nude modeling for Pulp Fiction covers and various publications to pay her way through Columbia. And she got cast in an Olivetti typewriter commercial. And this for her was like, this was what she often referred to as the origin story of herself becoming a feminist, although she really had a lot of feminist thinking before that, as we found in her writings. But she sits down and they say, make love to the typewriter type of thing. And she says, why? And they say, well, the ad campaign is going to say the typewriter is so smart, she doesn't have to be. And she just had a moment of this is horrible. And at the same time, she read that now had a group that was protesting all of Eddie's ad campaign, which was really like hyper-sexualized, very degrading about secretaries and how they would be hot and more attractive if they would use an Olivetti typewriter. And so she was nervous to go to this protest, shows up there and says, I'm the model in the ad. Or they say, look, it's the model in the ad. But she finds friendship, camaraderie, colleagues to work with on this stuff. And at the same time, there's these consciousness raising groups that are happening all over New York. And those are surfacing conversations about female sexuality. And questions arise that made Shira realize that there was a lot of investigation and exploration that needed to happen. And so she started turning her academic kind of attention to topics around sexuality. I think often we might think of her kind of in the tradition, and she did. Kinsey, first in the 40s and 50s, Masters and Johnson's, really in the 60s and 70s. They all, the institutes continue to do work, but she's really in a different situation. And even though she's published by Major House, Macmillan, the setup is very different. It does grow out of these conversations that are being had. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that was one of the real joys that we had in working on the project was reaching back and finding the people that she would thank in her books because they had helped her with this very early work. And so basically finding like her grassroots comrades in arms who helped her pull this off and coming to realize how much of an activist she was. It really was organizing and activism and art in some way more than it was academia, how she went about it. Even though I'm not trying to downplay the academic side of it, but just to say that it came out of kind of social movement and it came out of this idea that we have to find a way to tap into women's voices and we should tap into all kinds of women's voices. So she was very 
prescient about realizing that she needed to distribute her questionnaire all over the country in all different kinds of neighborhoods, try to match the population demographics, try to hear from young women, old women across all different races, sexual orientations, etc. So it was revolutionary when it came back because everybody could find themselves in it, but they also got to see what other people thought and felt. And essentially, we came to feel like the reason it was so dangerous was that it presented people a choice. It said, you don't have to be in this box. You could be doing this, or you could be doing that, or maybe you feel this way or that way. There's other people who feel that way too, and you're not alone. And that was really transformational. You know, instead of Masters of Johnson, these big academic with grants coming in and research assistants and so forth, she had to work with people she knew, close people now, friends. And you have these great stories about her running off the questionnaires on mimeograph machines. For those too young to remember those, look it up. And then (laughs) running around on the back of a motorcycle, distributing these in the Bronx. Yeah. Yeah, it was so hardcore grassroots. Like she literally, like the place where she was running off the surveys, the mimeograph house, it was like a anarchist press that was housed in some kind of squatting in like a Quaker church. And they would only let her use it at, at night. So she would go in in the middle of the night and do this stuff. She did have some cooperation and participation from now, which was really yeah. important. And actually the, the survey address was now headquarters in New York. That's where people were mailing the surveys back to, but they were all going directly into her hands is my understanding. There's a real DIY ethos here. And yeah. the thing is, this is ni- this is mid seventies in New York. This is the era of CBGBs and punk. And there's one young woman who's handing over a form to her and she's got the asymmetric short haircut and the high belted dress. And I was like, oh, that brought, me, brought it back to me. Like this is proto-punk. Totally, yeah. And also, like, even funding, as you point out, at that point in time, this is the mid-70s, it's still hard for single women to even get a credit card on their own. Yeah. So she had to turn to other funders, yeah. other people, angel, angels in quotes back then. Yeah, and here's somebody who literally had no money. Like, she literally had no personal resources and who managed to pull this off with the help of a lot of a lot of friends and comrades and the people who became boyfriends and whatnot. She was very charming and very magnetic and interesting and and passionate about what she was doing. And so people caught the fever of getting involved with the project and helped her. But essentially, she did this all on her own. There's a really interesting productive tension, I think, in her work. And I think you explored here, too, which derives from the fact that her motivations are academic, personal, scientific, and activist all in one. Yeah. These 3,000 surveys reveal this incredible diversity of human sexual response, later for men too. But she also had these very key points she wanted to arrive at. As you noted, one of them is that most women are not achieving orgasm through vaginal intercourse alone. And for her, that's not just a statement. That's part of a greater societal program for dehumanizing women. She would often say, we can't have a functioning democracy if 50% of the population is oppressed in their private lives, which is a very kind of distilled, simple way of saying it. But she really was amazing and had that quality that some people have, where it's almost like they came from another planet, they landed here and they said to themselves, why? Why does it have to be this Mm -hmm. way? And in her own writing, she talks about feeling that way from being a very small child. People would shame her or oppress her for just being who she was and having like a normal sexual interest. Her response wasn't to just feel shame. Her response was to ask why. And her response was to get angry and want to change it. She was so fierce and so revolutionary and so far ahead of her time in so many ways around this stuff. A person came up to me after screening last night here at Sundance and said, why did she have to go? He felt bad for her. He said, why did she have to go after the the worst thing to go after, the thing that was going to make men 
<laughs> the most upset with her and yeah, make her such sorry. a target, which is, yeah. of course, a big part of the story. But it's because she felt it was like almost the most important thing. One of the pleasures of this film is seeing Cher go toe-to-toe, and I use that pugilistic metaphor advisedly, with some of these avatars of hyper-masculinity of the 70s and 80s. <laughs> yeah. So Michael Conrad, famously the original roll call sergeant from Hill Street Blues, comes off quite well, as does, amazingly, Geraldo. David Hasselhoff struggles a bit. When I saw those shows, my jaw was on the floor because... I couldn't believe that anyone would. It almost felt like cartoonish, right? To have the like a, a soap opera actor who was also a male stripper. People that, I guess they just read male sexuality. And so there was this yeah. beginning of kind of gotcha television and this idea of putting her up against them and seeing what mayhem resulted on the part of the producers. It's funny because it's so absurd and it seems so far away from where we are now in terms of the way these guys are like trying to be so macho yeah. and completely unwilling to admit that they've ever had an emotion in their life, et cetera. <laughs> right. But on the other hand, it feels to me, it felt very familiar. Sarah's sitting there, she's one woman against five guys and they are not listening to her and they're mansplaining to her and they're sure that she couldn't possibly have anything to offer or tell them and they're treading into territory in which she's actually an expert and they're not. I mean, that's still the stuff of women's lives on a daily basis in our culture. So I hoped that people would have that emotional response of, of feeling, oh, my God, this is it was so bad back then. And at the same time, feeling we still have so far to go. A good chunk of the later part of your film is about methodology. <laughs> that doesn't sound so entertaining, but Cher rises to the challenge here, I think. And I wouldn't point out, I don't think this film is hagiography. Hey it's very respectful. It's not hagiography. Hey I want to talk, this is my personal response to some of what I see share, how she's responding to the criticism. Sometimes it's incredibly perceptive and really ahead of her time. For example, pointing out the way, the traditional ways men and women sit, how they take up space, how they gesticulate, and how men use that to create power. Other times, it seems like she would reactively fall into saying to many people, any hint of criticism, that's just what a man would say. You sound just like all the yeah. other men. Yeah. What do you think? Again, I'm speaking, this is my personal place. I know so I speak from a point of privilege, but I felt a little bit like she was just reactive in those moments. Yeah, I think she was reactive. I don't think she was a perfect person like the rest of us. And for us in telling the story, we really wanted to give her full humanity, not to make her a saint or an angel, but also to show that she was like a person with a sense of humor and a person who was complex. And like the rest of us is trying to figure out how to navigate her own persona and identity in the world. What I hope audiences will feel is the extent to which that the dignity of being a full human being was taken away from her by the media portrayals of her. So that by the end, she's presented as this very cold, distant, hard to relate to person when in fact, many of the people we talked to when we were going out and doing research would say to us, please show that she was funny. Please show, they just couldn't stand the way that she had been completely transformed by the media appearance. But I do definitely think she was backed into a corner a little bit about the methodology. And in terms of the longevity of the power of her work, the methodology is in a way like a little bit beside the point. You know, she was extrapolating statistics in a way that didn't match the way that social scientists felt it should be done. And right. she felt like I can't get a real random sample from people because if I was to call them up on the phone and ask them these questions, they wouldn't answer. So I yeah. have to go around that and make up a new methodology. And people did not... A lot of people did not want to give her the agency to do that, to say, I've found another way of getting at the truth that I think is valid. And so I think she did become a little bit embattled in a corner 
of saying this is science instead of maybe if she had embraced the creative aspect of it. But what I hope is that the film can contribute to people taking a look back and seeing what was so extraordinary and so powerful about the work, which was this very narrative way that she created a forum for women to have a, a kind of a cultural conversation and present the truths of their lives, which like, you know, which resulted in a truth that was really liberatory for millions of people Absolutely. around the world. And by the way, we can see her sense of humor. When I saw her show up at the Colbert Report, and this is before Stephen Colbert, this newer show is where he's playing this hyper <laughs> kind of conservative. I was concerned, but she clearly got the joke. And it's delightful between these two incredible people who created this persona. You can see them kind of measuring each other up. It's wonderful. Let me ask you just about the title, The Disappearance of Sherry Hyde, because I think it, some of the program of your documentary is to bring her back and to recognize her contribution. I just would note, I did a quick search on Wikipedia. The page on her is quite modest, and there is no secondary pages for any of her works there, which I found shocking. Can you talk about what you meant by the disappearance of Sherry Hyde? Yeah, we heard the word disappearance from a lot of feminists of her era whom we talked with in the making of the film. And they had talked a lot about the disappearance of not just Cher Height's work, but many of their, there were friends of Cher's like Kate Millett, who yeah. suffered equally and also expressed many times that she felt that she, I think she had a property in New York State that was a work retreat place. But if she didn't have that, she would have gotten out of here. We were intrigued by that word, especially because appearance was also very important to Cher and her appearance was so extraordinary. And the appearance of the revolutionary work that she unleashed on the world was so extraordinary, but yet there's been this forgetting and this pushing underground of the work, of the person, and of the ideas in the work to a large extent. You can see that people in the 70s, Cher was instigating them to have conversations about things like clitoral stimulation, which they've never had before, and they were nervous about it, but they were having it. And yeah. you don't see that today. You don't see mainstream newscasters being willing to sit around and talk about female orgasm or other aspects of women's sexuality. And in fact, women working in Cher's tradition today that I've consulted with and spoken with talk about still facing a lot of censorship, repression, major publications being unwilling to print the word clitoris. This kind mm. of thing still goes on. So that was the idea of using the word disappearance. But of course, it also has a very kind of like film noir, filmic connotation as well. And Cher really did, as we tried to present in the film, see herself as the heroine of a, of a film noir type of film. She really tapped into history and sort of strong female characters. She said that after the war, there were never any strong female characters in movies ever again. And she really loved the strong female heroines of movies of the 30s and 40s. And she sort of dressed and presented herself and lived her life like one. And so we wanted to have a title that had that kind of cinematic flair. Like if we wanted to create a big movie for a big person who lived a big life and made a big difference. Thank you for so much for being here today. It's a wonderful film. Everyone should watch it. It's entertaining and it will make you think. And it's clearly an activist film too. It has a goal. So thank you very much. Thank you too. We want to take a moment to thank our friends at Portrait for hosting these conversations at Sundance. Portrait is the creative alternative to LinkedIn for filmmakers. Apply to join their beta at onportrait.com. That's all one word, www.onportrait.com.